what it mean to me. Capital, go and make that history. I got a couple scholars to the left of me. Buff and blue, so you know they need not check for it. And you can take it to the bank. Welcome to GWSB Proud, a podcast that's all about why are you proud of GWSB? My name is Liesl Riddle, and I am the Associate Dean for Graduate Programs here at GW School of Business. And I have the privilege of being able to sit down with GW alumni, faculty, staff, and students and hear about why they are GWSB proud. I got a couple scholars to the left of me, buff and blue, so you know they need not check for me. Welcome to the podcast today. This is GWSB Proud, and I'm very proud to say that we have joining us today one of our former star executive MBA students, Dana Falk. Dana, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I, I, there's so many different things that you have done in your career, both, both before you came to GW for your executive MBA and afterwards. So why don't we just start with kind of telling, let's lay out the landscape for our audience. What's your career track been like so far? Where'd you start and how did you get here? Well, um, I learned very quickly that I don't operate very well in a traditional office setting. And that's just simply because I feel like offices kill my soul. And I know that that sounds really silly, but I, my first job out of college was actually, um, if you've ever seen the show Entourage, that was basically my life. I worked at a talent agency. I was like Lloyd, um, the assistant to Ari in that show. I was a Hollywood agency, talent agency assistant to two agents. Uh, learned very quickly that that was not for me. Um, I've also been a speechwriter for uh, Senate Judiciary Chairman, a Senate Judiciary Chairman uh, on Capitol Hill. Um, I've worked for professional sports teams. Um, and what I ultimately found was that the route to uh, being an entrepreneur was really paved by the desire to get up every morning and be really excited about what it is that I was doing. And to, when I do something, just my personality, I'm completely type A. So when I do something, I give you 190%. And so I'd rather put 190% into something that is mine um, that my hard work and toiling will effectuate a uh, impetus for success as opposed to giving 190% to something that may or may not impact me positively or impact others positively or have anything to do with me really other than the fact that I work there. So um, so yeah, I, I my path is entrepreneurial. I sort of feel like you're bored with it. I, I, I know there's lots of great entrepreneur entrepreneurship classes you can take and you will learn a lot and it will definitely help you uh, fill the entrepreneurial shoes, if you will, or the entrepreneur's shoes. But there's sort of like an inner fire that you just can't shut off and you either have it or you don't. And I have it in spades to the point at which it makes me crazy because there's times where I really wish I could just get it to like, tamper down a little bit. So um, long way of saying I've had a lot of different jobs, but I found my way into my current business and founding Hungry Fan, which is my business, um, because I saw a need, I had an inner fire, and I wanted to wake up every, every day and focus on building on that idea. 
Yeah. Well, Hungry Fan is such an interesting business concept. Why don't you take some time and and uh, and lay it out a little bit for 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 the audience? What's the value proposition? What's the Hungry Fan selling? Sure. So um, I'll I'll say by way of background, just so you understand how I even got to this point. My father is a GW alum as well, uh, law school. Um, his name is David Falk, and he's a fairly well-known uh, sports agent. Um, and by virtue of being his daughter, I grew up around sports. I was literally in my mother's stomach, traveling with her and my father and Team USA basketball on an exhibition tour through France and Italy. So I've, I've been around this for about as long as a human being can be around stuff, um, dating back to day one or before. Um, and um, I've always loved sports. I'm the oldest, I have a little sister. Um, my dad and I bonded over going to sporting events together and I had plenty of access to like the professional athlete sphere, but what I was always really excited by, excited by and excited about, I should say, were the sports fans themselves. Um, the crazy traditions and the, just the intense loyalty and the tribalism and just the insane things that you see at the tailgate before the game and the signs and the get-ups and the you know the dyeing the hair all of that I just always thought that that was so interesting and so compelling and fun I mean going to Super Bowl parties was like the highlight of my year I loved it the food the camaraderie hanging out the game the commercials and so it occurred to me after I graduated undergrad that you know, I took a little time to sort of research that fan experience and how many people consider themselves sports fans and how many people tailgate and how many people home gate, which is like a watch party or a tailgate at home. And, and how much money are these people spending and what are they buying and what do they need to do this? And it occurred to me that not only was it just astronomically high, the number of people, the percentage, 80% of America tailgates every year. 80% non-pandemic years, asterisks. Oh. Um, and 25% of all Americans home gate at least four times a year. And so when they do that, they're spending $35 billion a year just on food and drink alone. And that's only for the tailgate. The home gate is harder to quantify. But when you think about like the Super Bowl party, for example, over 110 million Americans will attend or host a Super Bowl party and they spend over $15 billion a year on just the food and drink and like party decor stuff you need for that. And I just thought like, oh my God, this is crazy. Like this is absolutely like for a market to start a business, this is an enormous market. Now who's in this market? Who's the guru? Who's the, and maybe depending on who's listening to this, if I say the Martha Stewart, you might not know who she is or understand like the origins of Martha Stewart before she was making like brownies with Snoop Dogg on VH1. But you know, she was a lifestyle guru who would teach you how to throw very specific get-togethers or how to trim your topiaries or prepare for Thanksgiving. Um, not necessarily this audience, my sports fan audience, but still conceptually somebody that a particular audience could go to for help to learn how to do something. And there was no Martha Stewart for this audience. There was no platform for this audience. And to me, it just seemed like this amazing white space that I could fill. And it was very authentic and genuine to who I am and how I grew up and what I was interested in. And really at the end of the day, like mission statement wise, 
what I sought to do, what I still seek to do at Hungry Fan is I recognize that throwing a great game day party either in the parking lot or at home is a lot of work. It's a lot of stuff you need. It's hard. And a lot of people do it, but think it's hard. And a lot of people don't do it because they think it's hard or scary. And so my goal for Hungry Fan as I continue to grow this business is to take the hassle out of game day because I believe that you should be focusing on game day on enjoying the day, cheering on your team, and hanging out, getting quality time with your friends and family. You shouldn't be worried about all the other stuff. So that's really our purpose. And we are working towards providing those solutions by combining great products and content to help you essentially get everything you need in one place. We're not totally there yet, but that's the world of the startup. You know, you work towards it, you keep inching and inching, you raise money, you get further but that's where we're at. So give us an example of what does one of those kits or one of those, you know, one of, one of those sort of product models, what does that look like? Sure. V1, where we're at right now, um, is not, it's just curated products. So some of them are ours. We have sub-brands called Arctic Chill, which is our cocktail line, and Grill Hogs, which is our grilling line. Um, we actually have the top selling tongs on Amazon and the best basting mop on Amazon. We just got written up in Good Housekeeping and Rolling Stone Magazine. Woohoo! Um, but as we start to think about making it more comprehensive, you use the word kits, mm. that, that is the perfect word. We want to put everything into a box that you need. Say you want to learn how to make ribs, or you want to make a lot of ribs because you're inviting a lot of people over. We wanna be basically put everything into a box that you need to make and serve those ribs so that all you need is to buy the ribs and have a grill. And we'll eventually we'll cover those too because we have partnerships in the works to be able to cover those. And in the box will be a, a handout or a piece of paper with QR codes. And it'll be for every step and every product. And you can you know use your phone on the QR code. It will take you to a video where we show you what these products are, how they're meant to be used, and then how you use everything in the box, all these individual products to make and serve the ribs. No more issues going to 10 different places to find all these things. That's part of it, right? All the shopping trips, it's a pain in the rear end. If everything could be one trip and it's just e-com, you just click and it arrives at your doorstep, so much better, so much easier, more time to enjoy the game and your friends and family. Oh, that's great. That is, that is really great. Well, you know, if you're ever putting together a Kentucky Derby kit, I've got a killer Kentucky Derby pie recipe from my great grandmother. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm totally taking you up on that because that is definitely Kentucky Derby food is tricky, right? It is actually a bit tricky because all we really ever talk about are the mint juleps and potentially if you really know Kentucky Derby, well, you know about the Oaks lilies. Yes. Um, But Kentucky food in the like pantheon of game day food isn't the most popular. There's like crawfish salads and some people are a little weird about crawfish or crawdads or crayfish, whatever you choose to call them. And there's burgoo, which is a stew, which isn't really the sexiest for a I'm sorry, burgoo is not sexy. I'll just say that as somebody. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, there you go. And and then there's the, there's the, the hot browns, which I do like. We have a great recipe uh, for those online, which we usually feature every Kentucky Derby season. 
Oh my gosh, working from home, dogs. I apologize. I can redo that if you want me to. Yeah, no, that's all right. That's part of it. This is pandemic po- podcasting. Pandemic podcast. Hi, everybody. That's my dog. Moose. <laughs> you can follow him on on Instagram at the Moose God. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, a Kentucky Derby pie is a chocolate pecan bourbon pie. Yes. Yes, it's killer. Yes. It, it it is it is definitely definitely killer. So uh, yes. I'll send you that I, recipe. I, I will have to yes, please send that to me. I will absolutely put your grandmother's name and we'll feature. <laughs> That's great. Well, so you know, this is such an interesting you know an interesting concept because I think it brings together so many of your different interests. You know, it's the entrepreneurial aspect, it's sports, you know, it's, you're also becoming, you know, a brand, if you will, um, and not just in a, for a product, but really for more of a, you know, around a, li- really a lifestyle kind of brand, um, you know, but, but you're, you're also very artistic, you know, you're, you're, once we're doing photography, right, in your past, yeah. so, so there's just a lot of, I really find, you know, when people put together a true passion project, for their entrepreneurial venture, you can really see it when so many different parts of themselves show up. It's usually when they're in the right sweet spot, you know, for it, for the market. So I think it's really exciting to kind of see how you brought, you know, all those things together. Now, one of the things I find really fascinating about your story is that you are an entrepreneur working kind of in a sports field and you've been kind of in the sports area for a long time. I know you've got the family background and all, but you're a woman. Has that been at all an issue for you, either in the entrepreneurial space in general or in sports in particular? Has it been? Yes. An <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. I will say this. I will say women are having a moment at the moment. Um, at least superficially, we're having a moment. Um, and I don't want to take this too off the rails, but when I say we're having a moment, it was like warm fuzzies, yay. And then this recent um controversy i guess is the right word at espn mm. with rachel nichols and maria taylor came up and it really just spotlighted the fact that the moment that we're having to me at least is totally superficial yeah. because there's one seat for a woman a woman of any color polka dots stripes it doesn't matter but there's one seat for a woman mm-hmm. at a network that is predominantly male and again color black like the color doesn't matter in this particular as it does matter but I'm for the purposes of what I'm saying it's really just there's so many men there's so few women that the women have to fight over the one seat when there's ample seats for men and that is a microcosmic example of sports and What's been interesting is that for the longest time, being a female, even a female with the last name Falk, um, has really just been useless. Like it doesn't, it, it's not a positive to be a woman. And given that Hungry Fan also straddles into food, which is also a heavily male-dominated business, it's been very, it's been very difficult. I, I've literally had men like pat me on the head like I'm a child and be like, "Oh, it's so cute." keep trying I mean so just such condescend I've received so much condescension um I've I've been told when trying to raise money that I should come back when I have a male co-founder because this is not a job for a woman I've been this is no surprise at all and I'm hopefully this never happens to anybody who's listening but I've had 
you know, money dangled in front of me and potential investment provided that I provide certain things that a woman would provide a man in a private location. Mm. Um, all mm. those things. I mean, it's mm -hmm. just, it has not been, it hasn't been easy, I, but I don't care. Like nobody's going to tell me that my baby's ugly and that this isn't going to work because it is working. And my baby is not ugly. My baby is super cute. <laughs> Well, I, that's very inspirational because it, it is so tough um, in almost any industry, but the one that you're in is really truly, as you mentioned, it's really a trifecta, right? It's entrepreneurship in food and sport. Yeah. And, and the unfortunate thing, I don't remember what the statistic is off my head, off the top of my head, but it's something like of all the startups get, that get funded every year, I think it's like 11 or 12% are women founded uh, businesses and statistically speaking businesses that are founded and run by women are more successful than those run by men however mm -hmm. I have literally yet to meet maybe more than two female investors they're all male investors everybody's a dude like everybody's a dude and sometimes you meet a woman who works for the fund but at the end of the day it's men who are making the decisions and I don't know, um, I'm not gonna speculate why so few businesses get funded, uh, female businesses get funded, but here's what I will say. I will say we went out to raise money last year, right? We targeted the beginning of March uh, to start raising money. We wanted to raise a million dollars and turns out that trying to raise money in March was a terrible idea because there was this thing called COVID. And that happened to continue and is still happening now. And we did manage to close $400,000 by the end of the year. And I have gone into meetings subsequent to that, like in the last few months and a hundred percent of the time I will get from a male investor when I say I've raised 400, I raised $400,000 last year. They'll be like, well, well, how much did you set out to raise? I say a million, well, you've only got 400. And I want to say, hey, MFR. I raised $400,000. I'm a freaking rock star. Do you understand that I raised $400,000 as a woman, nonetheless, in the mm. middle of the most like epically uncertain period of time in the history of the United States, save for maybe during the Spanish flu? Seriously? Oh, yeah. Right. And if I was a dude, they would be like, yeah, man, way to raise $400,000 like during COVID. <laughs> like, you're awesome. But because I'm a woman, it's so painfully obvious. And, and I say that not even speculating because you do these like pitch day things when you're an entrepreneur and you, you can hang out and you can watch other people pitch, which I always do because I'm more often than not more interested to see how investors will respond and hear questions so that I can better prepare for the future, especially if I can hop on early. It's like watching a scouting report or like watch, you know, before, before, a, you know, a game watching the other team play and like learning their defense so that you can outperform or whatever. So you just want to see how the investors or, or the potential investors rather are, are, um, look, you know, analyzing, uh, startups that are being pitched, the kind of questions that they're asking, like, are they jerks? Are they nice? Just general things. And I've seen people say that they raise, oh, I raise like, $100,000 during COVID and they're men and they'll be like, yeah, good job. Way to go. And I'm like, I raised four times that really just, just 400,000. Mm. So it's it. I sound like very whiny, but at the end of the day, 
it is what it is. And the, us women having a moment is kind of BS, but yay, good job us. Um, well, so do really, we entrepreneurs help one another, you know, no. or, or should they? Yeah. Yes. But sometimes they do, but what, without naming names, there are uh, funds and, and organizations that are specifically tailored to women or mm -hmm. are meant to focus on women. And I've heard from many other female entrepreneurs who I know as, and from also my own experience, um, they're almost more difficult. Mm. And I, they're very like, they, they parsed out the funds very sparingly. Um, uh, that's not across the board, but that is generally mm. the perception that I have gotten from fellow entrepreneurs and women's groups and there's a lot of organizations that exist to just support women not necessarily not necessarily fund women and that is sort of the uh the got like not the gossip just the general consensus but uh like I said I sort of just choose to ignore it everybody ever since I was a little kid when everybody goes right I go left I can't help it so like if everybody says oh it's not going to work I will prove them wrong just because that's what I'm built to do so. Well, let's talk then, let's shift into some advice because I mean, you had such great experiences and you faced a lot of challenges and, and really overcame them in some really creative and interesting ways and with just a lot of grit. <laughs> so, you know, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs in general listening, but particularly women entrepreneurs that really want to kind of take some of your wisdom and go forward? Um, I mean, well, what do I say wisdom wise? I, I think at the end of the day, I've, what I've really learned more, more recent than not is you have to have so much, I mean, you really have to have so much confidence and you have bordering on bravado, which I think is hard for women to come by because that's just not kind of how we're programmed. Um, but if you come in, it's, it's not unlike what I've heard men say about women when they look at them and they're determining whether or not they think they're attractive. When a woman walks into a room and she's very self-confident, men generally are attracted to that. And it, it's not because she has a gorgeous face or she has like a bodacious body or whatever. It's because she oozes confidence and that is very sexy. And like the pheromone thing goes off and the men are like, ooh, hubba hubba. And it's really no different, unfortunately, or fortunately, I, I guess. You, seize your power as a woman and work it, you know, like it's no different for um, in the entrepreneurial space. If you're really confident and you walk into a room, there's sort of two ways you can say something. You can be defensive about it, which is kind of how a lot of us females speak when we're speaking, particularly to men investors, male investors, um, or you can go about, it's it's the 400,000 out of, out of a million thing. It's the, yeah, I raised $400,000. I'm really proud of myself. That was really hard to do and I got it done and a lot of people didn't and a lot of businesses went out of went out of business, but I didn't. Or it's the I know we only raised 400 and we set out to raise a million, but you know, we're working on it. We're, you know, we think that we're having, you know, we have a path to more. That's two very different approaches to the same thing. And I'm finding just more so now than ever if you take the confidence approach it works so much better 
but you have to believe it. You can't just say it and not believe it. You have to really, I'm not saying get high on your own supply, but I'm saying like you, you are your business Mm -hmm. without you, the business doesn't exist. And so you have to be the number one fan and you have to be really confident that you will make it work. And if you're not confident that you're not going to, that you can make it work, you might be in the wrong business. Right. Yeah. You have to wake up and love it. Right. Cause this is, this is going to take up like 23 hours of your day. It's going to stress you out. There's going to be days where you're going to forget to eat. There's going to be days where you're going to be like feeling like you're redlining. And if it's not something that you love and really truly believe in, it's probably not worth it. Yeah. No, I hear you on that one. Um, you know, I, I feel like one of the things that's really so impressed me about getting to know you and your business is how well you also have really created this personal brand online. You know, you really marketed yourself on a lot of different platforms and a lot of different creative ways. And I know, you know, regardless of whether our students are entrepreneurs or not, you know, we talk a lot to students about how to build your brand on social media, you know, and uh, and in everything that you do. Can you talk to us a little bit about your your personal brand, your thoughts about building personal brands? Sure. Um, I'll say I'll say the two first things that came to mind. First is very much in keeping with what I was just saying. A lot of startups today are based on your personal brand. So that's not to say that's all of them. If you have a product business, like you have a widget, the widget doesn't necessarily have anything to do with you, but there is a a natural inclination today with marketing firms and social media to not only tell the story of the business, the widget, but also the founder story. So you kind of are your business. And so part of, I mean, it's no different for us. I mean, part in the case of Hungry Fan, an element of Hungry Fan is that you're getting my wisdom, my know-how that I've had since I was in the womb in Italy and France with USA Basketball, right? Like you're getting this lifelong in, insider's knowledge and somebody who's probably tailgated a lot more than most people. Um, and so like part of that content piece is is me, but I am also the founder of the business. And so there is a piece of that we have to dedicate to making sure that people feel like when they're coming to Hungry Fan, they're not just getting some product, they're getting a product that has been curated by me, mm-hmm. that has been thought about because of my experience. And I have a team that's working under the directive of me who has this know-how and experience. And really, I don't think it's any different if it's a, I mean, literally it could be like water, it could be, I don't know, a bike, it could be anything or a service. Um, the, the likelihood that you started the business because you have a particular knowledge about or fervor for whatever it is, it, it, like that's probably why you started the business, which means you probably have some things to share, some nuggets to share. So branding the founder of the business is, I wouldn't say just as important as branding the business, but it's a huge piece of it because like you have stuff to share, you have knowledge and you have uh, enthusiasm that you should share to build the community, which is the third piece 
right? So it's product, founder, community. Um, the, not all businesses have communities. We're trying to build a community. We mm -hmm. have a community. We're trying to grow it, I should say. Um, but, you know, you might have people who are passionate about biking and you sell bikes. I mean, like Peloton is a great example. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so having somebody that the community can get to know and rally around beyond just the product is also really important. Um, the other thing that sort of came to mind when you said that is the, the drawback, the, the, the hurdle here is the way to build a brand or build your own personal brand today really is social media. And that is very difficult and it's continuously changing and it's become increasingly more, um, it's harder to stand out. It's more saturated than now than it ever has been. And so I was very fortunate to like get on the Instagram train early, um, Clubhouse early, you know, Twitter early. I've been doing these things early since they, I should say, since they earlier in their inception, which has been helpful. Um, my biggest problem with them is that they're all essentially pay to play now. So you have to have a marketing budget just to promote everything that you do, which feels so icky when you're trying to grow your own personal brand, because it's like you're paying to market yourself, but you have to pay to market. You have to market yourself. Like that's the, that's a big part of it. So suck it up and pay the money, I guess. And feed the corporate machine because it's really the only way to do it until you build a large enough community of your own where you can own that community yourself, you know, put up a fence around it, whether it's via technology, an app or a newsletter where you can communicate one-to-one -one or directly with them. And by the way, direct mail is still the best form of marketing despite the success of social media. Hmm. That's interesting. So that's working well for you, direct mail. Yes, very well. We, um, we run uh, campaigns regularly to grow our audience, and then mm -hmm. we regularly call the audience. So if you haven't opened up one of our newsletters, I think if you haven't opened three, we take you off. And what that has yielded is a very sexy uh, open rate and click-through rate, which is really what uh, people are looking for in partnerships and marketing and all that kind of stuff. So um, regular emails, notes from me, content that you're not going to find on our website until after, um, you know, discounts on products, things that are of value, not necessarily immense value, but of value mm -hmm. that you can find only by being a part of the community that fenced off newsletter space is really uh, something that I think is easily repli replicable and very valuable. Do you find that there's certain segments that um, are more uh, newsletter consumers versus those that are consuming the content on social media, or yeah. are those two things really truly integrated? Because I've always wondered, you know, uh, about that. Are they the same market or different? Uh, they're different. Yeah, they are different. Um, and the goal is to make them the same. I see. They are, they are for, in our case, um, our newsletter is strong with the ladies mm -hmm. and our social is strong with the men. Interesting. Um, yeah. And so uh, we are working to 
bring women into our social and men into our newsletter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So how does the cookbook fit into all of this? Let's put in a good plug for that awesome cookbook. Oh, well, thank you. Um, uh, the cookbook, the Hungry Fans Game Day Cookbook, available on Amazon, um, <laughs> is a, uh, well, came out in 2016, which feels like ages ago now, because I've sort of lost all concept of time, but it's highly evergreen. The recipes are great. It's 165 recipes, 40 of which are not mine. I collected 40 from professional athletes and Olympians, such mm -hmm. as Michael Jordan and LeBron James and Andre Agassi and his wife, Steffi Graf, uh, Boomer Sison. I mean, lots of great, and Olympians, some great Olympians in there as well. Um, not just all professional athletes. And um, it's meant to be, you know, something, a great resource. If you want to make something really yummy on game day or maybe a Tuesday night, because, you know, the world is different now and we're all cooking more. I mean, Lord knows I am cooking so much more now. <laughs> um, it's, it's a great resource and it's really fun. There's lots of like tasty tidbits. I like to call them like fun little facts about not just the athletes who contributed, but stadiums and sports facts and things that just tie into the, the inspirations for these recipes. A lot of the recipes are, are, how actually I got started with Hungry Fam was creating recipes for games. So we talk about like the Kentucky Derby party, you know, for that, or, you know, if the 49ers are playing the Packers, like what's a great quintessential, you know, Bay area recipe and a Wisconsin recipe, curds, cheese curds all the way, all day. Yes. Um, and um, there's a lot of that in the book. And the one thing I will say that I've found is the best thing about sports parties is that anybody can go to a sports party. You don't have to be a sports fan to go to a watch party where there is a game or a match or a race being televised. Um, it's really just a great opportunity to socialize and the sports provides the backdrop. That being said, there are a lot of people who go who don't know a lot about sports who would like to have a couple talking points so that they feel like they're sort of in the know, even though they didn't grow up watching or following, or they don't really spend a lot of time reading about whatever that sport is. And so I feel like there's a really good, there's some good nuggets for people like that in the cookbook as well. As well as on Hungry Fan and our social, we do, we do, we have lots of good, good talking point nuggets for people who are looking for, you know, fun facts it's like, hey, you know, Novak Djokovic just won his won Wimbledon for the sixth time. And did you know that he now has 20 majors and he ties Rafa Nadal and, and Roger Federer? That's amazing. Like, oh my gosh. Maybe you don't know anything about tennis, but now you have a talking point and something to spark conversation, which yeah. is great for people at parties. Wow. I have really enjoyed this conversation. You know, it's, it's, you can, you know, unfortunately it's a, it's a podcast, so people can't see your face and I wish they could because the passion and enthusiasm, you know, is all right there. Like, I just love that entrepreneurial energy and creativity. And it's been just very special to kind of sit in that with you and learn from you. So thanks for sharing your time with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And again, I'm sorry, everybody, about my shrill dog. His, his barks are very high-pitched, but he's very cute, I promise. <laughs> well, thanks again. Thank you. 
what it mean to me. Capital, go and make that history. I got a couple scholars to the left. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening today. Shout out for music credit to Plantain Poppy, also known as Michael Ferrier, GW Class of 2020. See you next time to learn more ways we are GWSB proud. Hell to the blue, shaking the nipples when the team come through. I had to hell to the buff. Hell to the blue, shaking the nipples when the team come through, come through. What it mean to me? Capital, go and make that history. I got a couple scholars to the left of me. Buff and blue, so you know they need not that for me.